Um, and, and I'm going to be talking about revival uh, in, the, in the context of interpersonal relationships. So the story is told. The story is told of a priest who travels to Calcutta because he wants to finally get to meet uh, in person Mother Teresa. And so he uh, goes the long journey to Calcutta and he winds his way through in and around the, the, to, to the location that he was told he could find her. And sure enough, he encounters Mother Teresa for the first time in his life. And uh, he said, Mother Teresa, uh, this is such a God moment for me. I've just I've been looking forward to meeting you for a long, long time. And she, little bitty short lady, the story, as the story goes, she looks up at him and she smiles and she says, would you like to see Jesus? And he said, a little bit taken by the question, because the truth of the matter is, he came here to see her. <laughs> and uh, he didn't really know how to say that to her, so he, he was kind of tongue-tied. And so she took him by the hand and asked him again, looked him right in the eye and asked him again, would you like to see Jesus? And he, I mean, how, there's only one answer to that, right? When, particularly when you're a man of the cloth. And so he said, yes, very much, I would like to see Jesus. She said, come with me. So she, she took him by the hand and she led him uh, in between these two buildings, down this alleyway, and then around behind the back of another building and down another alleyway. And, of course, you can only imagine he, he has no idea where she's taking him or what, what's going on here. And she takes him uh, into this front door of, of a little house, and she takes him through the first room of the little house into a little bitty, a little bitty room in the back of the house. And this was one of her hospice homes that Mother Teresa had created for the dying. And... She brought him into this room, and just on the other side of the room, 10 feet away, uh, was a pallet, and there was a very small, frail body uh, of a man on his deathbed, dying. And she pointed, and she invited the priest to go and see this man. And uh, so, not knowing for sure what she was wanting him to do, he went over and he tried to have a conversation with the man, but the man wasn't able to converse. He was, he was still barely alive, but he wasn't, wasn't communicating. And so uh, Mother Teresa came over and stood next to him and took his hand, and she said, Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? See, Mother Teresa was fully focused on the principle that I'd like to share with you guys today. In my ministry, we call it the principle of the spirit uh, only because we, we talk about relationships a lot in our ministry. That's what we do. And, and we've, we've taken uh, spiritual uh, truths and scriptural truths that are eternal and we've uh, kind of arranged them into five principles of unity. And the principle I want to talk with you today about is about the principle of the spirit because Mother Teresa fully embraced it in what she did. She knew that if you want to see Jesus, the best way and the clearest way to see Jesus is to encounter his spirit in a brother or sister. That's where he is for us. And so uh, there's a lot of places that we could start uh, in the Bible to talk about this. The, the scripture is really chock full. It is replete with references to uh, what I want to share with you, but the place that I like to start is in Colossians, and I'll read it to you. If you have your Bible app with you, you're free to turn there, but uh, um, you may not have brought a Bible, but uh, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, what Mother Teresa was referencing for this priest was 
what the Apostle Paul would refer to as the great mystery of the ages. And that's why I like to start here with this particular principle, because I love mysteries. I am drawn in to mysteries. And when, so when the Apostle Paul talks about this great mystery of the ages, all of these Indiana Jones images kind of come into my mind. You, uh, this notion, this feeling, these concepts of, of something, some very, very precious thing that, is, that has been buried and kept hidden for ages and generations and now for the first time is unveiled. That's the same feeling that Paul is evoking uh, in his letter to the Colossians. Uh, I'm picking up in chapter 1, uh, the very end of verse 24 is, is, is a reference to the church. And then he says, starting in verse 25, with regard to the church, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what he's saying there is he's, a, he's referenced the church and then he's saying, and, and I'm a minister to you, the church, God's people. And the calling he's placed on my life is to make known to you the, the riches of God's word. To, to make fully known to you the riches of God's word. And to make the word of God fully known, uh, and here he is, t- talks about the mystery. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay, so he's got me. He's hooked me. I am completely drawn in at this point, too. He's talking about some great mystery of the ages that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, and now for the very first time is being disclosed to the saints. So listen to what he says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. And so what the Apostle Paul references as the great mystery of the ages, uh, what, what Mother Teresa would have said uh, to her priest friend, do you want to see Jesus? Come, you'll see him in this man. Uh, this, this reference is uh, referring to a spiritual truth that is all over Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. Uh, but but it, it ties all of, it's a spiritual truth that ties all of Scripture together because think about this. All the way back in Genesis, in chapter 1, uh, when in the creation story, when Scripture says, um, and God said, let us create man in our own image. Um, and he created man in his own image. Both male and female created he them in the image of God. He created them. Have you, ever, have you ever stopped and really just pondered what is, exactly does that mean to have been created in the image of God? What, what is that, how does that show itself? How does that manifest itself? And I'm not a, I have the, the luxury of being able to say I'm not a theologian, so I don't, I don't have to be completely accurate with my theology because I'm not a theologian. And so I say that a lot when I speak. Uh, And so the truth is, I don't know what all that means. Uh, Certainly there are lots and lots of of, of possible wrinkles and and versions and and, and applications of what it means to have have been created in the image of God. But here's one thing that I believe, and I kind of drew drew this a little bit from some things that C.S. Lewis uh, said. uh, To have been created in the image of God 
at least means, I believe, that each of us, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve forward, each of us was created with a God-shaped void in us, an opening that could never be filled with anything but God himself. I like to think, and this is uh, this way of thinking I get a lot from Max Lucado because I just love the way he tells a story. I like to think that when God created man with this God-shaped imprint in him, a, a void that could only be filled by God himself, that the angels immediately would have recognized, oh, wow, this is completely different. This is different than anything else he did. And, and they, could, they could actually, because they knew the face of God, they could actually see the image in the opening in him. But here's, what, here's what's interesting. That void, that God-shaped void, would not be filled for thousands of years. You, you go all the way through the story of God as told in the Old Testament, and there are, there are momentary fillings of people with the Spirit of God. It happened from time to time on a temporary basis for particular reasons. I remember, for example, when, uh, when God was going to anoint Saul as the king of Israel, there was a moment where he was filled with the Spirit and he was walking with the prophets and began to prophesy. And the Scripture says he was filled with the Spirit of God. But that was not a, a, temp, a permanent filling. That was a temporary filling for a moment. And there are other occasions of that in the Old Testament. But it wasn't until... The New Testament, in, in, in the second chapter of Acts, that something completely different happened that changed everything. Um, and I'm, um, I, Matt didn't tell you this because he didn't want anybody to leave, but I'm a really good Baptist boy. I'm a good Baptist boy. And, you know, we Baptists, we don't do the charismatic thing. We're, we're not into that. But what I'm about to tell you, I have to tell my Baptist friends all the time, guys, this is in the Bible. I think we need to talk about this. What happens in the second chapter of Acts changed everything, you guys, because that God-shaped void began to be filled with the Spirit of God for the first time, for the first time on a permanent basis and on a mass basis. You know the story of the filling of God's people with his Holy Spirit. And Jesus foretold that. He said this was going to happen, and then it did happen. And from that day forward, everything was different. From that day forward, everything was different. And, and, and I think that we take this for granted, and I think the reason we even need to talk about this and have revival in terms of relationships is because we take for granted something that even the... Even the people who walked with Jesus didn't have and would have died to have. The, the, the Holy Spirit himself living in us. The way Jeremiah would, would, would talk about it in, in, his, in his visions and his prophecies was, uh, Jeremiah would say, there, there will come a day when the laws of God will no longer be written on tablets of stone, but be written on the hearts of men. So, so there was a lot of scripture that foretold this, and then it happened in the second chapter of Acts. And then from that day forward, that was the birth, the, that Pentecost, that was the birth of the age of the church, which you and I are a part of. The age of having Christ's presence himself here among us 
in our brothers. And so there, there are all these references, all these references then in Scripture that I think we tend, sometimes, we tend to kind of skip over them or read through them like, yeah, 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 that, that whole abiding in Christ thing, I get that. But stop and think about these for just a second. Uh, John, the apostle who, who Jesus loved, the, the, uh, the, one who's, the one whose gospel stands out from the other three gospels. It's not, one, it's not, it's not one of the gospels that was just telling a story. John was, was very much into, I tell people all the time, if John's gospel were a movie, it would be a chick flick. Because it's very much into um, character development and long, long conversations. He gave us... He gave us the conversations that Mark didn't, Matthew and Mark and Luke were like, yeah, 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 that happened, but, you know. Uh, I mean, the conversation with Nicodemus, right, late at night, only John gave us that. The conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, what a brilliant conversation, only John gives us that. And so there, there are these things that John gives us, and by the way, he only, he only writes about seven miracles in the entire Gospel of John, seven miracles. And, I mean, how many miracles did Jesus perform? And John writes a, is going to sit and write a story about Jesus, and he only chooses seven of them, and every one of them was chosen for a very specific purpose. So, so John's gospel is different, and the, and the same person who gave us that gospel says in the middle of that gospel, he says in John uh, in uh, chapter 15, uh, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, and if a man remains in me, and here it is, here's that principle, and I in him... He will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So John gives us, John's gospel gives us there um, our way forward in, in and among God's people is abiding in Christ. And if I, when I am abiding in Christ and he in me, then I can find my way forward. But when I am choosing not to, when I am not acting out of the spirit that is living within me and rather I'm acting out of some fleshly self, then I'm going to have issues. And, and, and so from the, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, particularly, particularly in Paul's writings, because Paul is so practical about writing about church life together, it's just it's replete. It's, it's all throughout there. There's so many different references to it. And so if you stop and just ponder, what I want to say to you is this. If you stop and begin to ponder this principle, the, the, the idea, the reality that the Spirit of God himself lives in every believer, including that one that you don't like to make eye contact with here in this church, including that believer who didn't vote the same way you did in the last election. Now I'm stepping on toes, I know. Including that believer who doesn't even believe all the same stuff you do about the Bible and about Scripture. Christ himself, the Spirit of God himself, lives in that believer. And so what duty, what responsibility, what obligation do you have if you have been linked together in ministry within the spiritual umbrella of a single congregation? What responsibility do you have then to know that part of Christ that lives in that brother? And to relate and engage with and connect with your Savior in that person. See, this changes. This idea changes some things about how we relate to one another. Because we don't, we don't get to just write them off anymore. 
right? We don't get to write them off because we don't like the way they wear their hair or we don't like the way they dress or we don't like the way they talk or we don't like this about them or that about them or that about them. We don't get to write them off anymore. And, and, and in fact, in, one of the ways Jesus addresses this is in, in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5. What Jesus says is, you know, Jesus, Jesus helps us understand so many things about how we relate to one another. I mean, he didn't just leave it at love one another. He really got more detailed than that. And one of the examples he gives is in Matthew 5. He says, when you come to the altar to worship and you get there and you remember that you have a broken relationship with a brother, the way my Bible says it is, and there you remember that a brother has ought against you. What Jesus says is, I'm not interested in that worship. I don't want that worship. Drop the gift. Leave the gift. Go. Go to that brother and reconcile with that brother. Because how dare you come to the altar and say to me, Oh, Jesus, you are worthy of worship. But then when I am living in that brother with, you, with whom you have a broken relationship, you've turned your back and said, but not so much there, Jesus. You're not so much worthy there. And so Jesus says, I, I don't want that kind of worship. I don't want that kind of worship. That's two-faced worship. That's a lie, frankly. It's hypocritical. I don't want that. And, and so even Jesus was was tapped into how important this is. Uh, Jesus, in, in, at the Last Supper, remember, this is when he said, um, look, uh, there's going to come a time when everyone, everyone who said they were following me is going to be brought together before the throne of grace, and they're going to be divided into two different groups. In the same way you would divide sheep from goats. By the way, you and I hear that and think, how would I divide sheep from goats? We'd, but to them, they understood it. They got that, right? And so he said, the same way you would divide the sheep from the goats, and I'm going to turn to this group on, on my right, and I'm going to say to them, you did well. Because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was naked, you clothed me. And they're going to say to me, we have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. We don't remember doing that for you. And I'm going to say to them, don't you get it? Same, same thing Mother Teresa would say. Don't you get it? When you did these things to the least of these brethren of mine, you were doing them to me, for me. Because I live in those brothers. Jesus is trying to give these guys a heads up that when everything changes at Pentecost from that day forward, you're not going to be able, you're not going to have the luxury anymore of just turning your back on a brother in whom Christ resides and with whom you have been yoked in ministry and you have a responsibility to. And so this principle changes everything about everything in the church. And, and, and what I'm hoping for today is I'm hoping that pointing this principle out and showing you just some of the places in Scripture that talk about it, I'm hoping that this principle will haunt you and you will not be able to shake this for weeks or months or years. Because if you think about this principle, for example, when you come into gathered worship, it'll change how you worship. It'll change how you worship because you'll realize that the very God you have come there to worship lives in your co-worshipper. And that changes worship. 
It changes gathered worship. It makes gathered worship completely different from that quiet time that you have at home when you're all by yourself and it's just you and the Lord. It makes it completely different because you're literally encountering God in one another when you gather in places like this. Um, so many different places in Scripture. I, I'm just kind of picking and choosing uh, of places in Scripture that, that refer to this. The same John who wrote just that amazing gospel in his letters in 1 John chapter 4. He says in 1 John chapter 4, No one has ever seen God, but if you love one another, then God lives in you. And so it becomes a function, it becomes a factor uh, in terms of how we treat one another. In fact, the way Jesus would say that, uh, the, the, the one another's that is, Jesus would say, um, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Now this was right on the heels of Jesus uh, answering uh, a trick question from the Pharisees uh, about um, the law and the prophets and, you know, uh, Jesus accurately summed up all of the law and the prophets in a couple of different in a couple of different commandments but on the tails of on the on the heels of that when he's talking with his disciples what he says to them is i'm going to give you i'm going to give you a new commandment stop and think about this for a second this is a new commandment this is not a redo of an old commandment what jesus says to them is a new commandment i give to you Love one another even as I have loved you. In other words, what Jesus is signaling to them with this change that is about to happen, with this change of the Holy Spirit coming and living in people, in the believers, then with that, it's, it's, gonna, it's going to absolutely and profoundly change how we connect and relate with and engage with one another because Christ lives in another it changes so many things so many things in church life it changes every committee meeting every leadership meeting every time we gather together it changes every small group meeting it changes every accountability group it changes how we worship it changes how we write our constitution and bylaws it changes everything when you begin to allow this this idea this notion that the whole that the holy spirit himself the spirit of god himself lives in every believer it changes a lot of things about how we connect with one another so i want to leave you with one more and then i want to uh, i want to get you to talk around the tables about about i'm going to give you a couple of questions to deal with around your tables but let me leave, just leave you with one more story because and this is a leadership story so you know and you may be sitting there thinking well okay i, I can tune out now because i'm not a leader no, no no let me tell you something it is wednesday afternoon at lunch and you're at the church. So whether you want to admit it or not, everyone in this room is an influencer. You are an influencer. You are a leader. And so this story's for you. This is another story that is an important one. This is, an, again, going back to John's gospel. I, I'm drawn to John's gospel. Can I, I don't apologize for this, but I do, want to, I do want to make sure you understand why. John was all about relationships, much more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Luke was all about history. Right? Mark was all about telling the story from a Roman. Mark, you know, John's gospel is a chick flick. Mark's gospel would be a guy flick, right? Bombs going off, chase scenes, action, 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 action. That's how Mark writes. But John was just so into relationships and the, and the developing and nurturing of relationships. And so he, he just got it at such a deep, deep level. 
And so in John's gospel, he, he tells the story of Thomas at the, end of, uh, at the end of his gospel, chapter 20. You know, you know the story of Thomas, so I won't go through it all, but Thomas uh, had, was not in the room, not in the upper room, when Jesus made his first appearance there. And it was a life-changing, obviously a life-changing appearance for all of the other, all of the other apostles, and John, uh, Thomas was not there. Uh, we don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't there. That's not important to the story. The, the fact is he wasn't there, and so they go out to find him, and they find Thomas, and they tell him, you're not going to believe this. And they were right about that. He wasn't going to believe it. But they shared the testimony. We'll never be the same. We've been forever changed as a result of this. You've got to understand this. And Thomas's attitude to them was, uh, and maybe you've heard this from time to time around the church, his attitude was, hey, guys, uh, thank you for that testimony. I am so excited for you. I can see it's changed your life. That is awesome. But you need to understand, if, if God has something to say to me, he's not going to say it through you. He'll say it to me directly. That's the way it works for me. Now, we see immediately that, that uh, his unbelief got fixed because Jesus appeared to Thomas and said, all right, I'm back. Thomas, stand up. You wanted to do this. Come on. You can come do it. You know, and, and, and if you read it carefully, you realize Thomas didn't actually even do it. He just fell to his knees in worship without actually going and touching. And so his unbelief was fixed right then and there. But you know what we don't have any account of? We don't have any account of this attitude in Thomas getting fixed of if God has something to say to me, he's not going to say it through you. We have no account of that happening in Thomas's life. Now think about that. Think about how critical that skill, hearing Christ speak through a brother, will become as soon as Jesus is gone and the Holy Spirit has come. And that'll be a critical skill and we have no account, which may explain why we don't have a gospel in Scripture from Thomas, right? I mean, I know there is supposedly a gospel from Thomas, but it didn't, it didn't make the cut. And, and it may well be because he never really got over this maybe. We don't, we don't know. We don't know what happened with this. My, my point with this story is this. As a leader of God's people, as an influencer among God's people, if you ever, ever, ever signal to a brother or sister, God's never going to speak to me through you. You're done leading, at least in that person's life. You've just given up all ability to be an influencer in that person's life for a number of reasons. One is it was offensive, but secondly, because it's not even accurate. It's not even right. I mean, even in the Old Testament, remember David and the, and, and the Shimeite? Um, uh, the, the, the guy who hated him so much and was lodging dirt clods at David and his, his buddies and uh, David and his men and one of his guys says, you want me to go take care of this guy? And David said, no, 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 no. Let him, let him throw the dirt clods at us. Leave him alone because who knows but that God may have sent him, right? I mean, even in the Old Testament, we have these stories. I mean, I remind people in the church all the time, God, hey, God spoke through a donkey, 
He can speak through us. And as soon as I say that, there's always people in the crowd thinking, and I know a few donkeys. That... <laughs> but, but seriously, the point is this. God, God speaks through his Holy Spirit and can do that through anybody at any time. And so how dare we as leaders ever treat the people we're leading as if God will never speak to me through you. And, and so this, this idea of the Spirit of God himself indwelling every believer and being in those people and in me and in you and the Spirit, the, the Christ in me connecting with the Christ in you and drawing us together in ministry, it changes everything about how we do church and who we are as a church. It changes, it changes things to, to the very core of my identity. Because once I come to grips with this idea, then my very identity is no longer tied first and foremost to the color of my skin or to my gender or to my country or to my neighborhood or to my demographics. My identity is tied to one thing, Christ in me. That's first and foremost. I am who God says I am, who the Christ in me says I am. And so it, it, it's a really profound principle. And so here's a question I'd like you to talk about around your table. I'm going to give you a couple of questions, but the first one is this. I'm just going to give you like five minutes to talk about this around your tables. So the question is this, obstacles to this, obstacles. What, is it, what are the things in our culture what are the things in the way we, we handle church? What are the things in us? What are the things that get in the way of our literally experiencing Christ in one another? What are the obstacles that we have to overcome? There are some huge ones, but I want you to talk about them around the table. Take five minutes. What are those obstacles? Ready, set, go.
Okay. Here's the deal. What I didn't tell you, what I didn't tell you is that this was just practice. I wanted you to practice on each other and then share in front of the whole group. So, now that you've had a chance to say it out loud across the table and figure out if it works or not, for those of you who feel like maybe it did work, what did you talk about? What, what are some of the obstacles, obstacles that you came up with? Let me hear from you. Ego. Yeah, yeah. Ego, and that's, of course, driven by uh, what people are going to think of you, and so you're making decisions that are designed towards, uh, that are designed to manage how you are coming across to make sure you're, you're being perceived in all the right ways, whether they're accurate or not, by the way. And so, yeah, that you get so wrapped up in um, whether people are liking you and valuing you or not that you lose the ability to allow the Spirit of God to work through you and to, and to see the same thing in other people. That's good. Ego is huge. Ego is huge. That was, way to go, Marcus. Well done. Well done. He just, his, his ego is too small for him to set it out loud himself. Well done. Who else? Uh, what, what, what are some obstacles that you talked about around your tables? Yes. Shame. Yeah. Yeah. Things in our past or even in our present that, that have us living in such bondage, right? To, to we, we find, we, we allow our identity to get wrapped up in what we've done. Uh, as opposed to Christ in us. And it makes it impossible, right? It makes it impossible not only for us to see through that to begin to find Christ in other people, but it also makes it hard for us to get self out of the way so that other people can see Christ in us. And by the way, this does go both ways. Uh, uh, there There is this responsibility of looking for and finding Christ in one another, but there's also a responsibility of making decisions in my own life that make it easier for my church to find Christ in me. And that's another whole principle. We call that the principle of perception, but it, it makes it easier for people to be able to see Jesus in me because this, these are the cultural norms that we've established at, the, at our church. And so uh, that's, another whole, that's another whole conference, though. Who else? What obstacles did you come up with? Scott? Yeah, yeah. Lack of forgiveness for any of a number of reasons. Maybe I don't understand what forgiveness looks like or how it means. Maybe it wasn't modeled well in my family growing up, therefore I don't have any working knowledge of it. Or maybe I'm just mean and just don't want to forgive, right? But it could be any of a number of things, but where there is no forgiveness, then the lens between you and me is dirty, and we cannot see the truth about one another. I can't see you the way God sees you and I can't find the Christ in you because I'm by golly going to hold on to this pain as long as I can and I'm not going to let it go. So lack of forgiveness is huge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh Great question, by the way. Uh, I'm taken immediately to when you talk about major sin in someone's life and trying to break through that in order to help them see the truth. You know what story I go to? Nathan and David. Um, David and his sin with Bathsheba. uh, He has her wife, he has her husband sent to the front line and killed because he, he needs to hide the fact that he has slept with her and 
Um, and now there's this poor pregnant widow woman in his kingdom and so he invites her to come and live in the palace with him he's going to take care of her he's convinced himself he's an honorary guy an honorable guy he convinced himself that he's convinced himself that he's doing all the right things and being honorable and it took his friend Nathan to come to him and find the right way to help David see the truth about David and what he used on David would never have worked on Saul And probably wouldn't have worked on Solomon, but he knew exactly, the Lord helped Nathan know exactly the right button to push in David. It was this button of injustice. And and so helping a brother see the truth about himself, see himself the way God sees him, requires a lot of prayer. By the way, David was the bloodiest king ever in Israel's history. Do you think Nathan was maybe just a little bit timid about having to go in and confront him? about this sin in his life. And so, tons of prayer and discernment and to, in order to find the right way to introduce this topic. And so, but, but when that's not happened and you've got someone who is blinded to the truth about themselves because of the sin in their own life, they're likewise blinded to their ability to see Christ in other people and for other people to see Christ in them. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, another question. Uh, the next question I want you to answer is this. Think about any difficulty in the church today, and it doesn't have to be this church. It can be the church globally. It's always easier to talk about other churches than our own. But problems in the church today, right? Think about any problem in the church today and talk about what, how would that problem be different if God's people just learned to see Christ in one another and connect with Christ in one another. I don't care what the problem is. Pick any problem you want that you're aware of. Everyone, come on, you've got your list. Everyone's got their list. Pull your list out. Take one of the things off your list. You know what I don't like about the church today? You know, whatever it is, however you would fill, fill in that blank. And then talk about how would that be different if, people, if the people of God would learn to connect with Christ in one another. Ready, set, Go.
All right. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to debrief that question with you, but uh, I, I do think that that's a really important question. And what I really wanted you to, to take away from that particular question is. Uh, um, I know it sounds a little bit like a snake oil salesman when I say this, but I really do believe, I really do believe that this principle, if understood and implemented among God's people, fixes just about everything we're struggling with in one way or another. Uh, when I get to, most of my career has been spent over the last 25 years working with conflicted situations in churches, conflicted congregations, that's what, that's what I do. And one of the very first principles that I find has been violated and forgotten in those situations is we're not finding Jesus in each other at all. We're not even beginning. We don't even know where to start to get back to that. And so it really does. It really does fix an awful lot of things. I want to leave you with two personal questions before, uh, before I pray for you. And can I just, at the end, Matt, can I just pray and then we'll, okay. So I want to leave you with two personal questions that I won't ask you to process out loud unless you want to do it with your accountability partner at some point would be great but two personal questions first of all we have talked about a lot of scripture today and I don't it's a rhythm in my life I don't open God's word and 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 look in look in it without asking myself now what so my first challenging question to you is now what and, and by the way that's the third of a series of questions that I use in Bible study I have a very complicated hermeneutics, a very complicated Bible study process. I read the Bible and then I ask three questions. What does it say? So what? And now what? What does it say? So what? Why did God give that word to me? What is it about me that needed to hear that? Now what? What? So what? Now what? Okay, the what and the so what we're pretty good at. We do that all the time in church. Church people are just really naturally good at what and so what. We're not so good at now what? We're not so good at now what? And James would say, yeah, we are knowers of the word, but not so much doers of the word. And so my challenging question to you is, in light of this, whatever God has said to you through this time today, now what? What is your next step? What will change? And then my second challenge to you, my second personal question to you is, more specific than that, how does it change how you pray? Because if it's not changing how you pray, then it's probably not going to change anything else in your life. It should have an impact. Your conversation with God should change as a result of things we've talked about here today. And so that may be kind of the, the easier and the first part of now what is, does, has it impacted how you will pray? How will it change your prayer life? And then the now what? Those are my questions I want to leave you with, and I hope that you'll ponder those as you go through your day and as you go through your week and next time you gather together with God's people. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. There's nothing about this truth, Father, that we want to miss or get wrong. We want to get this right. You, 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 have, you have indwelled us. You, you abide in us, your spirit living in us, and we want to, we want to fully explore all that that means in our life together as, as a body. And so will, will you show that to us? Will you um, make next steps clear to us and then give us the boldness to take them? Will you 
Um, help us to see clearly the work of your spirit in one another and then know how to connect with that. Help us find our way forward in that way, Lord. Make us doers of your word. Make us a, a people um, who represent uh, your supernatural power and authority on this earth to a lost and broken world that so desperately needs it. This is our prayer. We love you. And we pray in Jesus' name.